0: Hey, I'm Dave Rubin and joining me on The Rubin Report today is the author of Console Wars and the History of the Future. Blake Harris, welcome to The Rubin Report.
1: Thank you for having me on, Dave. I have to say that it's nice to be here. It's always nice, any place someone wants to talk about my books, they both took several years of my life, but I am a big fan of your show and and, We'll get into it, I'm sure, but this most recent book is very difficult, and, and listening to your interviews was a comfort to me. Seriously, like, I remember taking a lot of coffee walks and just having rational conversation. I was like, this is what I'm missing from my life, so Oh, thank wow,
0: you. well, thank you very much, I appreciate that. I'm really happy that you're here. Now, first off, um, today, when we're taping this, although this will not air today, today is hashtag national video game day so i feel it's a very fitting yeah. day to have a video game guy on so i'm gonna be my video game best self here
1: yeah and, 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 and listeners and viewers should know that you have gamer cred in the green room you have a, a genesis emulator and you have your childhood nes so i was very impressed so yeah you know, i came up with a high opinion but
0: there you go Uh, even higher wow so I've got yeah so that's a it's a fake emulator just means fake right like Uh, yeah yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. it's just
0: a fake one it's not my original Sega Genesis so I've got that thing that is my childhood NES in there uh, which wasn't working for years and I took it apart I watched a YouTube video on how to take (laughs) it apart and you know use rubbing alcohol and and apparently technically you're not supposed to blow in the cartridges did you know
1: that yeah, but I like. I still totally disagree. Yeah, you know, I, I'm am somewhat of an expert on this, and I, you know, every other expert has told me no, you're not supposed to blow on it. But it works. It's like the people who say, don't restart your computer when you have a problem, and it just somehow works. And so. it
0: just works. They reject,
1: which I guess is. Uh, you know, a very populist thing to do. No, don't <laughs> trust the experts. I know better.
0: <laughs> uh, I went to, like, this vintage video game store to get a couple of those old Sega Genesis games, and I made a joke to the guy about blowing in the games, and he freaked out. Really? Yo, you're not supposed to do that. you got to use rubbing alcohol and da uh, So I've got those two in there, old Sega Genesis, old Nintendo Entertainment System. I've got a PS4, which was given to me by former Ruben Report guest and your friend, video game all-star Colin Moriarty. Yeah.
1: Great guy, good friend. I love seeing him go uh, initially just leaving IGN and flexing his entrepreneurial muscles and then starting his own thing. Yeah. Uh, he's a good guy. I'm- he said good things about you. Um, what, what made you get the NES and not the Genesis system, if you recall? Since I'm since so, you know, am invested in console wars, like, why did you pick this?
0: Yeah, so, well this is exactly where I wanted to start. So your first book is Console Wars, and it's basically about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, really like early, mid to early 80s, into, when would you say that war sort of sure. shifted? And, so, then I'll, and then I'll answer your question. Okay, yeah. so,
1: um, Yeah, so my first book was *Console Wars. It came out in May 2014. It was life-changing for me. Before that book, I was a commodities broker trading sugar, coffee, and soybeans for Brazilian clients. And then I finally got to uh, retire from that and do what I love for a living. Largely, that was because Seth Rogen had optioned my book. So, um, and, and and I imagine that not just because to name drop Seth Rogen is a wonderful opportunity, yeah. but because my you know my book and this one as well and everything I write I always write with my grandma in mind. Like how can I get her to care about Sega and Nintendo? How can I get her to care about virtual reality? Hmm. And it's the human story. It's you know, or or as people like tell me, I, it's like a literary movie. So that's how I sort of write things. And, and the the story of console wars is this battle between Sega and Nintendo. Uh, Nintendo resurrected the game industry with the NES that you. Had have in 1985, and then Sega tried to beat them with the match system and failed miserably. And then between 1990 and 96, uh, Sega, you know, took on Nintendo. And, and, and when Nintendo was like 95% of the market, they surpassed them for a while and they flamed out. And yeah, so it's this behind the scenes story. And so I'm always really curious since, since those were the people that I wrote about in the boardroom saying, How can I get a young Dave Rubin yeah. <laughs> to buy this system?
0: Support for The Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome, and it's exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing six years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Rubens. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. J.D. Power disclaimer for J.D. Power award information. Visit JDPower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage, and now back to the show. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on because, this, so first off, your next book, which is your new book, The History of the Future, is going to get us, that, that'll that be the second half of sure. this interview, and that'll get us sort of up to speed on what's going on with tech and sort yeah. of gaming and technology and virtual reality and all that. Uh, but the first half where I want to focus on these things, I mean, most of my audience knows, I, I consider myself sort of like a, I'm like a retired video gamer <laughs> because those old systems, well, A, I just don't have that much time anymore, so that that's one thing. Um, but those old systems, there was a simplicity to it, there, you know, you could usually just run one direction. You couldn't even run that way. Right, you couldn't right. even run backwards. You know, Mario could run yeah. that way, but the more he ran that way, right, the right. less room you had this way. Yeah, there was a certain simplicity to all of it that to grow up with it. I mean, I remember 1985. I'm nine years old. I remember my buddy John getting Nintendo Entertainment System with Gyromite and Duck Hunt, <laughs> and it had that ridiculous yep. robot Gyromite. Yeah, Rob the robot. Yeah, Rob the yeah. robot. And I remember it, it just blew my mind I could not believe anything could be this cool the amount of Hours that me and my friends spent sleepovers playing either Mario Brothers or eventually we shifted mostly to the sports games, bases yeah. loaded and RBI baseball and double dribble and all those things. I love that stuff. And and all the games not working and blowing in the games <laughs> and you know sometimes taking apart the controllers to get everything working and all that. Um, are, are we roughly? You're probably a couple of years younger than me. I'm I think, 36. Huh? You're 36, so I'm I'm 43, so I'm I'm a little yeah, ahead of you. but, but on I remember
1: that. all that. Like. You know, I've obviously reflected on that era a lot. And, I, and video games, I never considered myself a gamer. I was just a kid and that's what you did. And, and it was really was like the social lubricant at the time. Like I wouldn't call you up and say, hey Dave, you want to have a sleepover and talk about girls? I'd be like, hey, you want to play Mario? And then we'll right. talk about girls or right. Yankees. And like, it was just this thing that you did. And I did pretty, Poorly, I, I've, I've always really, I've been bad at video games.
0: Were you not a good gamer?
1: No, like I, 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 it's kind of embarrassing because <laughs> there's so few video game books, which is part of why I wanted to write one. And, and gamers are so disrespected, and you know, I, I, like I've been so embraced by that community. I'm I, I want there to be more books, um, but I'm terrible, and, I, and I've never tried to hide that. But I think that's a big part of why I like you. You know, if I have an hour, I'm probably gonna be playing, um, you know. NBA Jam or uh, Madden 93 or something like that instead of the latest games Um, because I'm just terrible at them. It's a little too complex for me, and and I'm just a simple gamer at heart.
0: Right. Well, it was one thing to only run this way and not run this way, but now you're running this way and you can run this way, and that's where, for me, for the tiny brief moments of time I have, I'm like, ah, I'd rather just play Contra. Yeah. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. B, A, select, start, and you know, have fun for ten minutes, and then try to put, play a game that's going to basically give me a headache.
1: Yeah. And one thing I found that's pretty interesting, and I'm curious to get your take on it is, so uh, you know, I assume that the two reasons that we like playing these games is it's simple and fun, which is like what you look for in a game, and then also the nostalgia factor mm-hmm. that these were game a time in our lives. Um, but but I've spoken to college students and high school students. And, and it's been so amazing that they describe... Uh, you know, they play Mario games, the games from the 80s, games from the 90s, and I said, like, how come? Like, why are those interesting to you? And they say, oh, it's just so nostalgic. But mm-hmm. but it's not nostalgic to them. They didn't grow up... It it's not reminding them, like, but... So what is it that... Is it, it reminding them of like their parents
0: or something? Like, it's interesting. I guess it's a two pronged thing in a certain way, where it's sort of like the the simplicity and fun part, right? Because it was just two buttons. There was a limited amount of things you could do. I think the games generally focused maybe a little bit more on fun, where they're now right. focused on challenges or something like that. Yeah, and graphics and 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 right, and much more heavy yeah. on graphics and story, where you know you have to wait a lot. Every time I put on that PlayStation <laughs> right, Four, it's you... mostly like I'm literally sleeping by the time we get to the yeah, next yeah. screen. Um, but the nostalgia part is interesting because I'll now I have a ten year old nephew, and I'll play PlayStation with him, or I've even watched him play with some of his friends, and they're playing like you know, nBA two k nineteen or something. Yeah. And to be of a certain age and to be able to immerse yourself fully in something, that's really what I think it is. Okay, that if yeah. you can remember what that feeling is like for those little brief moments, and there are moments when I'm playing with him where I can suddenly, Feel that when you're completely immersed. And I'm not thinking about politics or yeah. the fact that the world's spinning off its axis or, you know, whatever else is going on there. I think it's a few of those things. But all right, enough about me.
1: Okay.
0: I want to talk about these these console wars. Yeah. Um, I remember being in arcades sort of before that. So I never, so Atari was the system before NES right. came out. That was the main one. There was also, there were a couple others, ColecoVision. Yeah, there was uh, like the Magnavox
1: and, Odyssey. Um, I, I mentioned that because the guy who invented video games, Ralph Baer, created that, and I got to spend a lot of time with him before he passed away. Um, and, and just a great guy who should always be mentioned because he's often forgotten. And then you know Nolan Bushnell, and Atari got a lot of credit and um, did great things, ColecoVision, television. And then the industry died in 1983. There's this crash of video games, um, that, you know, sort of famously highlighted by the burial of millions of ET cartridges because they actually made more ET cartridges than there were consoles. Right, uh, And it was a terrible game. Right,
0: so there, I remember that game. <laughs> I remember my friend Adam had it on Atari and it was a horrible, stiff, like, was almost Was he like, no- willing to admit
1: it was bad? because No, brain, nobody
0: would admit it, it. It was
1: like 50 bucks, you had to love these things. You or, pretend you love them, so it's like, oh, this is a great game. Uh.
0: What, what were they possibly thinking though? So Atari puts out a game with more copies than the system itself. This seems like, I, I'm not a great businessman, but this doesn't seem like great business to me.
1: Right, but but it's almost like, it's just, it's the personification of what always happens. You know, when you have the success, you can't fail, and there's a hubris, and so they said, it's licensing, it's a popular movie. It's a game, you know, it's probably made by people who had lost touch with the audience. It worked, like, it's probably the best thing you could say about it. Um, but but it was made I think in six weeks mm-hmm. and uh, and and really that did just like personify the fact that, that there was this oversaturation of games because you know for, for younger listeners and viewers out there you have to remember like you know this was before the internet we didn't know what we were getting I remember going to like Toys R Us you know, mm-hmm. toys with my parents yeah. and it was like the special time where they were just gonna buy me and my brother a game the first time that wasn't for a birthday Hanukkah or whatever. And our entire criteria for choosing the game was just the box. Uh-huh. Like we like we had no idea what the gameplay was like. So people, I'm sure that ET. I mean, it did sell well initially because people were like, "Oh, it's ET. It's Atari, can't miss." But it definitely missed, and and then the industry essentially died. Like you know, when Nintendo went out in 1985, and and. Introduced the Famicom, which was the you know the family computer in Japan, which here was the 8 bit Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say, like, I talked to the guys who would go into Wiz and Radio Shack and try to sell these things, and, and they, they were not given the time of day. The the vendors there, the buyers were just like, I don't want video games, we lost a lot of money on this. So, it, it, you know, I had those same memories as you with Nintendo, where it's just you know, my eyes light up playing it again, and back then it was just amazing, but but it, but it wasn't about the quality, it was just about this baggage.
0: Yeah, it's so hard to believe that at some level, yeah. because, you know, so I'm nine years old in 1985, and it just took over our world, but after that crash, what caused, that two-year window from 83 to 85, what was it that Nintendo was able to do? Because it was a huge jump in graphics, it was a huge right. jump in music, but it wasn't just that. It was also the fun thing. Like, Super Mario, to, like that defined a, a generation right. and, and actually built an entire industry, basically.
1: Right, I mean, obviously, the easiest answer is good games or better games than what came before, and that's certainly true, you know, it was a step up in a way that hasn't really happened before, to go from like, Frogger to super mario brothers is a, is a big jump but as as you know i as you learn going behind the scenes with both these books it's so much of it is about the marketing the promotion and all that and nintendo just had a, a really unique approach to all of this you know you probably fondly remember the nintendo power the nintendo Hotline. oh yeah
0: like i had nintendo He was
1: like a sort of like a, a cult in the best sense of the word it was like you know getting kids involved in this thing And i remember one uh, quote from Minoru Arakawa, who's the president of Nintendo America, him saying that um, they were suggesting like, you know, uh, we, need, we need to put out like five games at the same time, and he's like, no, I want, I think it was Zelda to be out mostly and no other game really for like six weeks, because he wanted everyone playing the same thing at the same time. Like hmm. He wanted this communal experience, and I think that was a big part of it too. Um, there, there was like a concerted effort behind it and, and, and it, and I do remember being communal. I remember friendships being made and lost, and, and, and it was like, that was all we talked about at school.
0: I don't want to brag, but <laughs> so sometime around, this has got to be around 87 or so, Zelda Two came out, Adventure of Link, and I was at my grandma's in Jersey, and I think the store was called Kaldor. Yeah, it, was just like had a, had a, it was just like a Sears kind of store. Yeah. And I remember, I knew when, when Zelda Two was supposed to come out. It wasn't supposed to come out for like a couple weeks or something, and they had a copy of it there. And I begged and begged and begged, pleaded with my grandma, <laughs> please, please, please. My grandma buys us this game, which was probably like 50 bucks, which was a lot of money at the time, yeah. you know? And my brother and I beat it in about two weeks. Now, it's thought of, I think, as one of the most complex, difficult... Yeah,
1: I'm, like, difficult, very impressed
0: right now. <laughs> it, it's thought of, yeah, it was really one of the most difficult Zelda games out there. But we took a picture of ourselves as we beat it, a black and white picture that oh. appeared in Nintendo Power Magazine. Really? All right. I could end I the, sh- I no, could end the, the show right now, that's, that's it.
1: That's so cool.
0: Yeah, so all right, so Nintendo really changes the game with this. And then at the same time now, Sega comes out with the Master System. Right. I truly don't remember anyone that I know that had the Master System. It was like a joke to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's not unusual. Like, this wasn't like a Coke, Pepsi situation where Coke had like 65% of the market. Like, Nintendo actually had over 95% of the market. One of my favorite ads From that time was it was an ad that is a picture of Mario and says there's no such thing as a Nintendo because that's my mom my mom still calls every video game a Nintendo but they were worried (laughs) about the the trademark concerns of like you know the way Jacuzzi has come to represent hot hot tubs or Kleenex Kleenex. yeah so like Nintendo was at the point where they were so synonymous with video games that it was actually a synonym for video games Um, and so they were so dominant and then Sega essentially. Realized that they couldn't win this 8-bit battle, so they tried to change the location of the war to 16 bits, you know, twice as good graphics, but as we sort of touched on earlier, you know, that doesn't make it more fun necessarily, it makes it flashier, and and, and a lot of people think that the Genesis came in and started to, to eat into Nintendo's market share, but that's not actually what happened, the Genesis launched in the United States in 1989, um, and it struggled, and the two big changes were uh, the arrival of a guy named Sonic the Hedgehog, mm-hmm. middle name's actually the capital T, yeah. and then this guy yeah. Tom Kalinske, who uh, became the the president and CEO of Sega of America in 1990, and led them from you know less than five percent over 55 percent, and and he's the central protagonist of my story. And, and it, you know, uh, he's so important to point out because I, I basically realized, as I would do these interviews with him, that other than my parents, he is the adult most responsible for my childhood. <laughs> like, <laughs> back in the 60s, he had his first job at the advertising agency, J. Walter Thompson. He helped create the Flintstones Trubal Vitamins. And then he uh, went to Mattel when they were thinking about retiring the Barbie line. and helped revive Barbie and then did for boys what Barbie did for girls with He-Man, Master of the Universe, and he's just this guy who had this golden touch everywhere he went. And, and Oh, you
0: know, do- I just I just watched that show on Netflix that I'm sure you've oh, seen. Oh, Master of, uh, uh, It's the history of, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's like the history of toys. I or forget right. what it's called, the toys we loved or something yeah, like yeah. that, and they talk about him in the in the He-Man yeah. line, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's an amazing yeah. guy.
1: Um, you know, usually when I, I, you're doing these interviews over years, you see, different sides of people, but like he really is just an incredible role model, he does things the right way um, and it's not shocking that he seems to have this magic touch because everyone has such nice things to say about him and yeah so he took SEGA out of the gutter, um, you know sort of famously one of the big narrative turning points was he delivered this four point plan to Japan and so it's important to note that SEGA is a Japanese company even though it was founded by an American and then Tom was in charge of the American division and as is somewhat also the case today like the American uh, sector is the biggest sector, so um, but it was a weird situation where america 's a subsidiary and japan is the parent company and Tom proposed four things. Among them was competitive head-to-head advertising against Nintendo, which was frowned upon in Japan, hmm. bundling Nintendo, uh, bundling Sega's best game with the Genesis relaunch, which turned out to be Sonic the Hedgehog, mm-hmm. and the Japanese board uh, members thought that was crazy because you know that's how you make your money. It's a razor and razor blades business. We're just giving up this $50.
0: So that was a little bit after Sega had debuted, though, because right. Sonic wasn't on the original Correct. Yeah,
1: Sonic didn't come out until 1991. So it was almost like a relaunch under Tom, uh, and that's when they started to really um, uh, carve into Nintendo's space, um, and, and, and also doing more sports games because you know Japan didn't really care that much about American baseball or football, um, and, and doing all of these things that, that worked, um, and 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 then you know a year later Nintendo launched the Super Nintendo, um, and I and, and sort of the way I got into writing the book was. I remembered as a kid, I had the NES, it was the greatest thing in the world, and so naturally when I heard of the Super Nintendo, my brother and I wanted that, and we put together like the childhood equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation with our parents, <laughs> and it was like, we'll throw in, you know, our two birthdays, a Hanukkah, Fourth of July, whatever, like, we need to get this. And I remember my dad saying, no, he wouldn't buy us the Super Nintendo. And, and my dad was awesome. He'd always, you know, try to figure out a way, like, you save up this. But he had no interest in getting us a Super Nintendo because it was not backwardly compatible. And people, parents felt like, oh, uh, well, yeah, we just bought yeah. library and now it won't work, even though, you know, you could absolutely just toggle the cords. But back then, the whole... Behind the television. Did they
0: have a splitter them. back then? Because yeah, I, like, yeah. I remember doing that too. We, there was <laughs> yeah. one audio yeah. uh, video out, basically, or, or in. Yeah. And I would have Genesis and Nintendo. And well, I was, you were
1: like a precocious young lad. Like, <laughs> for the rest of us, it was like, oh, I don't know what's going on. You can only have one system. Yeah. Um, but so my parents wouldn't get that for us, and we ended up getting a Genesis, and I became a Sega kid, and, and it's just interesting in sort of the context of how I wrote this book, because I like behind the scenes business stories, and, and looking back, because of a decision in a boardroom somewhere, we're like, no, we don't want to make it backwards really compatible, because that would add $35 to the system. My life changed, and I became a Sega kid, and then on the school year, and I was fighting for Team Sega.
0: Yeah, um, and they, these were fights. I mean, I remember yeah. having fights in the in lunchroom, probably, now I've got to be in eighth grade, Yeah, fighting with kids over my friend Ari. He had like Super Nintendo, that bum. <laughs> but I like Sega Genesis. Did you think Genesis.
1: that it was like Sybil? Like I remember it as like heated, but like still friendly. Oh yeah. On, like, well, we all we all like,
0: played games at the end of the day, but like right. we would be screaming at each other and you know yelling and the whole, what, what games did you like on Sega Genesis? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Many people are unaware that driving while high can be just as dangerous. In 2015, 42 2% of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs. Not so harmless after all, is it? And get this, from 2007 to 2015, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled. The truth is driving while high is deadly, so stop kidding yourself. If you're impaired from alcohol or drugs, don't get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Drive sober, or get pulled over. Paid for by NHTSA. And now back to the show.
1: I was always into the sports games. I guess yeah. those ones I, I was good at. The, the only game that I feel like I'm very good at is NHL 94, which is yeah. probably my favorite game of all time.
0: It's in there. Did you see it?
1: No, I didn't. It's in there. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I like the sports games, the NBA Jam, and uh, I also just really love because there's you know not all games were two players, the sports games usually were, and uh, I had this brother, or I have this brother who's two years younger than me, um and now he's my best friend, but back then I hated him, I despised him, he was so nice, and I was so <laughs> not nice and 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 that was like you know playing Genesis and Nintendo was like the one thing that we did where we were, we're like friends, so yeah. That was a lot of my good memories
0: from that. It, it's interesting that I can see that a good portion of this that excites you is the is the business part and the sure. and the marketing part, because I remembered seeing Sega Genesis for the first time. My friend Josh had it, I went to his house, and he was playing Ghouls and Ghosts, which I think was in that original, they, were, they came out with maybe six or eight games, Altered Beast, right. I think came with the Alter system. Was the and the yeah. package. And then, but I remember seeing Ghouls and Ghosts, and my mind was blown, like it was, the graphics were so much better, the colors were so much richer, uh, the music was incredible. Yeah, it really
1: was like arcade quality, which you mentioned. Like That was kind of where we first saw a lot of these games. Um, and it was a big step up. Yeah. Um, but,
0: but you're saying that actually didn't have that much to do necessarily with the success, that it really was more on the marketing and, and the business and everything. Or do you think that uh, it was so, I, such an obvious jump?
1: Well, I would just say that the Genesis came out in 1989, exactly what you described, with *Altered Beast* and *Ghouls and Goblins* and all that stuff, and it didn't do well. So it clearly had to be more than just the games. And you know, I think a good story that sort of sums up what this was all like, and sort of the spirit at Sega, and why I was fascinated writing about it, was you know, as kids and even as adults, you sort of imagine there's this meritocracy to it. Like the best consoles will have the most shelf space and sell the most amount, but. That wasn't the case, no, yeah, especially because Nintendo had uh, you know, monopolistic practices. They later faced the FTC issues. So I'm not really speaking out of school to say that. Um, where, you know, it would be a situation where they counted for such a great deal of, say, like Walmart. I think they counted for 10% of Walmart's business one year. Just, wow. the, just this one... You know, division of the, the of, you know, this 20 by 20 space in the store. Um, and, and, and so, you know, if Walmart wanted to carry another console, Nintendo would say, oh, well, then, you know, maybe the Mario Brothers 3 shipment's going to not make it to you guys. We, don't, we can't control what happens with these uh-huh. trucks. Um, and so they did a lot of stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I remember hearing stories from people at Sega that they'd go to Walmart and be like, here's our new console. It's better. Kids like Dave Rubin will say, like, you know, look at these graphics. It's better. And Walmart's like, yeah, but, like, sorry, we're not. We have a relationship with Nintendo, and so what Sega ended up doing was um, across. They, you know, they were down in Bentonville, Arkansas. That was the headquarters of Walmart, and across the street from the headquarters was um, this mall area, and there was a for rent sign. So they rented this area and they opened the Sega Genesis store, which sold nothing, but it just encouraged people to come in and play this play the Genesis for free. Huh. And they also bought every billboard in Bentonville. They bought the seat cushions at the football games, and they turned Sega. They basically turned Benville into Segaville, and then you had all these people going into the flagship Walmart store being like, where can I get a Sega Genesis? And, you know, that's, like, clever, cheap, guerrilla marketing, and that is what eventually got the Walmart VP to call up Tom Kalinske and say, all right, we raised the right flag, we're going to carry Sega products. So, you know I, I, you know, I don't want to dismiss the importance of the games themselves. Like, none of this would exist without the games themselves. Mm-hmm. That, like... If you were starting a game company, that would probably be the number one thing i tell you to focus on. But it's not enough, as, as with a lot of things. You know, good content is not enough. You have to figure out a way to get it to people, and especially when you're dealing with a competitor like Nintendo.
0: Is it mind-blowing for someone like you that knows the history of it and also played them to see what the video game world has become now? That it has become, it's not just... You know, um, you probably know the numbers on, on how much revenue games are bringing in and all that stuff. But it's not just about the numbers and the finances; that it's become a culture unto itself. I think there's a direct connection between the culture war that we're fighting politically and yeah. having a lot to do with the video game world and gamer game, and all these things. That that it, it the video game culture birthed out some other thing.
1: No, it's so amazing that you know, like I said, I, I'm not very good at video games and I, I don't really play much. Uh, Games nowadays, and so, if I, with, with most things like that where I'm not good at, or I feel like you know the young kids are using Snapchat, I don't care. Like I kind of feel like a, a crotchety old man. Yeah. But with games, I almost feel like I'm smiling off the side proud. Like I, I love that kids get it in a way that I don't, even mm-hmm. though it makes me feel like I'm missing something. I just because I love gaming, I love the culture around it, and, and and I never would have expected this to happen. Like I remember, um, like I said, my father was awesome, so he would play Mario Brothers One with my brother and I, but he did it in the same way as like a a parent would go to a a tea party with a a, a child. Like it was like, (laughs) he was, not ah, being condescending, ah. but it was like, right, right. this is a kid thing that I'm doing. And, and, the, and, and Sega, you know, I think that the most important part of their legacy is how they transformed what video games were from childish playthings into consumer electronics. Um, they're obviously not around in the same way anymore, but that is really like the answer to why does this time period matter? And, and the other thing- So,
0: so let's wait, let's yeah. stay with that for a second. So okay, so there's, there's the NES, and then Sega Genesis comes in, but what is that transition that you're talking about?
1: Wait, wait, oh, like, where they got
0: into consumer electronics. Oh, sure. Really. So,
1: so basically, you know, when Tom Kalinske took over, he realized Nintendo. Nintendo had ninety five percent of the market, and they were just so dominant with kids six to fourteen that to use their, you know, it was it's kind of it was kind of like a Moneyball story where they had like one tenth the resources of Nintendo. So to try to get. Nintendo's core audience didn't work, and so they figured, all right, well, Zag. So you know, you guys can have the kids. We're going to go after teenagers and adults, which you know, like my dad, like that was just not the audience. And so Sega, instead of selling it KB toys, wanted to get into um, you know the back then version of Best Buy, basically into the into places where you buy a, a cool Sony Walkman or something huh, like that. Interesting. And and then they also um, just changed, you know. Like the marketing around it was a big deal. Like what you described with Zelda 2 was not uncommon. There was not really release dates of these things. Like, even though you knew it was coming out in a few weeks, like the fact that they were selling it ahead of time, it wouldn't come out the same day in the same places. And Sega followed, like, you know, they wanted to make a model like the, like the film industry, like to make a big deal out of like, this is coming, here's a trailer for it, here's all these months of, of hype, for better or for worse. But that is what gave us sort of the modern game industry and, and, the, and the culture around it. Um, And I was just going to say that, you know, one of the things that was amazing to me was, uh, you know, I I put together this book proposal for Console Wars. um, And at that time, Seth Rogen had already optioned it to do a movie. He was going to produce a documentary for me and my buddy Jonah Toulis to direct. And Scott Rudin was involved. And he had adapted, you know, so many of my favorite books into movies, like The Accidental Mm Billionaires, which became Social Network. So it was like this dream team package in which I'm like the least important person, but I'm just so happy. And I thought, like, this should be a slam dunk. Of course we're going to sell this as Seth Rogen, Scott Rudin, Sega, Nintendo. And and the proposal went to 25 publishers and 22 of them passed because they said video game books don't sell. They said gamers don't read. Mm-hmm. And so, that's why, I, part of the reason I just feel such a kinship with the, the, the gaming audience. One, because they bought the book and proved the publisher wrong. And two, because they're, they're they're talked down to all the time. They're they're underestimated all the time, and, and it's ridiculous.
0: Had book, had Ready Player One not uh, already Ready proven Player them One, wrong?
1: Um, well, you know, I think Ready Player One had come out in 2012, or right. Um, so it had come out, but they would say, oh, that's a nonfiction. You know, my book's nonfiction. That's a fiction sci-fi book, mm-hmm. even though it's cl- it clearly taps into that same audience. But um, I, I'm sure it wouldn't shock you to know that most publishers have a sort of older school business model that maybe could use some updating.
0: As I'm in the midst of writing my first book at the moment, I've become uh, acutely aware of this, yeah. Um, Okay, so so now Sega starts winning, basically. Now Super Nintendo comes out. The competitions, again, someone told me actually, but am I getting this right? Did Super Nintendo actually outsell Sega? at some point?
1: Yeah, so, so we go from...
0: Because that seems hard for me to believe too, because what you're talking about, we all cordoned off in our own little world. Right, right. <laughs> I was in a Genesis world, so most of my friends had Genesis, so it's hard for me to believe that that could be true. Well,
1: you know, Dave, we always live in our echo chambers.
0: The, we
1: weren't, they weren't algorithmically giving to us back yeah. then. No, but so okay, so in 1989, Sega strikes out, with Genesis, 1990, some, leeway, some, some headway. 1991, they come out with Sonic, Tom's plans are executed um, and, and they still you know Nintendo is Nintendo so Nintendo still outsells them at first and then slowly but surely Sega keeps gaining momentum and then the big turning point was Mortal Kombat you know this was a game that so back then like arcade games were almost like the minor leagues of these consoles like mm-hmm. I remember going to Pizza Pizzazz our local pizza place and like they had Mortal Kombat it was a huge deal I was like, yeah. is this is coming to the consoles and, and usually what would happen is one of the Two console makers, uh, Nintendo and Sega, would get the exclusive rights to it, and it would come to that system. Like Street Fighter Two, Street Fighter Two, at least initially, was only available on the Super Nintendo. That really helped Super. Uh, that would really help Nintendo. That was a third-party game, and then they had first-party games like Mario Kart and Zelda and all that. Um, and, and, and acclaimed the, the makers of Mortal Kombat, um, decided that they wanted to release on both systems on the same day, uh, which was not only interesting, but it was also just like the, a great litmus test between Sega and Nintendo. Like, for once, it would just be... And the-
0: that was against Nintendo's policies at the time, right? Didn't they get into some fight with Tekken, I think, about that, because they were trying to release things on different systems Yeah, they, or I mean,
1: the, Nintendo was involved in all sorts of strong-arm tactics. Some of them that ended up... Leading to court cases like the antitrust stuff and you know uh, also famously they sued galoob the makers of game genie because they oh yeah like you know this was messing up their creative games by giving you extra lives they also sued uh blockbuster and and the the rental companies because they said you know you you can't rent out our games uh nintendo didn't end up winning a lot of these things but but that was also good because, um, like, like you noticed, like, I love the behind-the-scenes stuff. That, that's where I think the drama is, and that's another big reason that Sega was successful. Because these are, Galoob is a name, and it's a company, but it's also people. So Sega decided that they were going to form a cartel of Nintendo's enemies and be like, Nintendo's really strict with you guys. We want to work with you. Let's make this happen. And there's people at Galoob who are like, yes, let's go out of our way to actually beat Nintendo. So you you know, whether it's partnerships like that or whether it's just small things. Like I remember talking to the the buyer at the Wiz and he said, you know, we couldn't explicitly do anything really early on, but like he would always make sure that the Genesis had the prime real estate in the mm-hmm. store. Even though it was a small space, he was like, that's the one that would face the consumer. Because they, they just they all wanted to see Nintendo fall. And then Mortal Kombat comes along and Mortal Kombat was a fighting game that was famous for its violence and gore, uh, specifically the fatalities where you yeah. rip someone's spine out, um, which now
0: is like hilariously right. yeah. comical. <laughs> but, yeah. but
1: back then, like it was a big deal. Yeah. Obviously, that was what us kids liked about it to a degree. And um, and Nintendo went to a claim and said, because of their family-friendly image that Nintendo had, they said, uh, "Can you make? Can you? We want you to tone down the violence and change the blood from red to like grayish green." <laughs> And the guy at a claim was like, all right, well, that's probably not going to work. Um, meanwhile, Sega was like, all right, we can amp up the violence. Um, they had a version that was a little more tame, but you entered the blood code, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, the cult of kids that played this game all knew it right away. Um, and, and that was a big turning point because the Sega version outsold the Nintendo version like five to one. And it also, you know, what a, I always thought this was like a funny aside was um, Howard Lincoln, the senior vice president of Nintendo, said, they, they, they knew that they were gonna lose business, but they thought it was important to stick to their core values, but he thought, and so he thought like, well, at least we'd get a lot of parents saying like, thank you, bless you, Nintendo, for doing the right thing, but instead they got a lot of angry letters for censorship, uh-huh. how dare you censor the games, so.
0: Yeah, but, but they were also under pressure. I mean, there were politicians at the time that were de- yeah. saying these games were too violent. Well, that's,
1: that's an interesting thing, because Nintendo had generally squeaky clean games. They they really are like the Disney, the Pixar of gaming, and and they've stayed that way, I think, partly because Sega kind of put, like, you know, showed them that they can't go beyond, you know, Nintendo took advantage of of that niche. But Nintendo felt like Sega was um, doing inappropriate things. You know, what I came to realize is that it was just, you know, there was not necessarily a good guy or a bad guy, it was just ideological differences. Uh, whereas Nintendo is very much like Apple closed system. They want to control every aspect of 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 the of the chain. And while, you know, that's sort of totalitarian, it also leads to a really high consumer experience. And, and Sega was all about choice. So if you're a developer and you want to make a game with some adult themes, go for it. Whereas Nintendo would say, like, you know, think of the children. And Sega would say, like, no, think of the developers. Like, or children don't have to buy it. So Nintendo um, made sort of a greatest hits VHS tape of of, Sega's, of the violence on Sega system and started slipping that to people in Washington. So there were... Wow, that's incredible. It's incredible. 3 led by Senator Lieberman. Yeah. But they didn't happen by accident. You know, Nintendo was pretty psyched to make this happen. Um, and so, yeah, so I love that, that behind-the-scenes drama. And, and one of my favorite things was, you know, when I, when I first started writing this, I imagined, like, oh, this is, like, a great rivalry, like, 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 Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, like, these two great competitors who, who fight on the court, but, like, you know they respect each other. They push each other to greater levers, levels. And you know it's been twenty years or twenty-five years since this. And I, I think every single person i interviewed from Nintendo still hates everyone at Sega. They <laughs> think they're a bunch <laughs> of frauds and marketing hucksters. And everyone at Sega hates the people at Nintendo still. They think they're a bunch of bullies. And they're both right. And which they're is in, the best part.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it's all about. That's yeah. what the competition is all about. Yeah. So. It's interesting though, because if you think about it, at some level, in the, in terms of keeping the core values of we're more of a Disney company, we don't right. go violent. Maybe we focus a little more on fun instead of hardcore graphics or whatever. Um, Nintendo has kept that Im- that core image, right? Even even to now. Right, and, and, and I think even if behind the scenes they were doing all sorts of shady stuff and sh- you know right. dealing with politicians and you know,
1: but but that, and that was like a really big deal because remember it's, these are like adults running the companies, like they they like. They think Mortal Kombat's cool, yeah. but it, but it's against the image of the company. And again, these are also Japanese-owned companies. So, um, you know, the, a large part of the reason that my book focuses so much on Sega is is because that's where the action is. That's the David... Versus Goliath story, but it's also they had a lot of autonomy. Nintendo was a lot more carrying out orders from Japan, um, and, and Japan didn't want to uh, get more into adult content. Like one idea that I think actually would have worked was um, I, I'm going to botch this, but like you know Disney had subsidiary production companies, like was it Castle Rock, like basically stuff that did adult content that mm-hmm. was made and financed by Disney, but it didn't feel Disney because it had a different name. Mm-hmm. And I think that Nintendo it would have served them well to sort of be doing it uh, different sorts of content but trying to distance themselves from it but they but they couldn't get the green light to do those things and and I think that um, you know Nintendo's philosophy has always been very like slow and steady wins the race um, you know that uh, Sega did surpass them but then Sega sort of busted in 1994 and for several years Nintendo continued to sell um, SNES games uh,
0: what, what, what caused that bust with Sega Genesis
1: well a few things um, I think one of the things I found really fascinating about the console wars is that, unlike actual wars, which are much more serious, of course, but like, wow. but but like, there's wh- whether you win or lose, something has changed, and you're in a position of strength or weakness going forward. In the console wars, you can kick ass one generation, and then that doesn't necessarily help you in any way when you start mm-hmm. the next generation. So it's like every five years, it's a reset, and so that next generation console is such a big deal. Um, and and. And, and as a writer, I couldn't have asked for like a more poetic ending than the fact that you know, what happened was Sega of America was so successful. And, you know, We talk about this battle between Sega and Nintendo. It didn't happen in Japan. In Japan, Sega never surpassed like 15%. And that's, that was a weird dynamic where the people who were actually making most of the games were not succeeding. And part of it, I would say, is because they didn't have the risk appetite to go head-to-head to do all these things that Sega of America was doing.
0: And I remember you couldn't use the... Uh Mega Drive cartridges in a Sega right. Genesis because they they design yeah. them slightly differently because
1: they, they yeah. each wanted to do things their way and the American way seemed to be working But while Sega was like Sega of America was hitting its stride Sega of Japan was like alright. Let's let's go on to the next console um, and and There's you know, maybe some that they were always working on the next consoles, but um, they came up with something that became the Sega Saturn Which um, whether or not like Whether or not you think the technical specs were great or not, it was very hard for developers to create content for, which is a real problem, because they're really your main customer. Um, So, Tom Kalinske wanted to come up with a a console that he thought would do a lot better. Um, he, He initially approached Sony. Uh, who was working on a console of their own? They were presenting a joint partnership to Sony. Sony was seen on board. Sega rejected it. That became the Sony PlayStation. Hmm. Um, that so that was, so
0: that basically could have been the Sega PlayStation. Exactly. Wow.
1: And then um, and then a similar thing happened with Silicon Graphics, uh, the chip makers. They contacted Tom and showed their new system, uh, showed what could be the base, the foundation of a new system. Um, Tom's like, "This is great. This is cheaper." Um, and then it got rejected by Sega of Japan, and that ended up. Not you know leading to N sixty four so basically Sega had the chance to actually have put out the two competitors that destroyed it wow uh, which is interesting um, yeah like you know going writing a five hundred page book but remember that my grandma can enjoy so it's a great yeah. Dan Brown esque read but writing a five hundred page book about the battle between Sega and Nintendo I assumed that the most important battle would be between Nintendo and Sega, but it actually was between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. There was a sort of a civil war that that doomed the company. A lot of it was based on um, uh, jealousy, is the most simplistic way to put it. But but I, I can I can be sympathetic to if you're actually making the games and you're not really getting the credit because you're not you know you're not actually selling systems. Uh, so it was just a really interesting dynamic. And then I ended up actually being hired by. Sega of America to shoot some documentaries for Sega of Japan. And this was 15, 20 years later, so you know, the caveat that can't direct, it's not the same people, you yeah. can't say it. But I totally experienced everything that people felt like. Huh. Like, for example, we brought um, all this film equipment and every setup took like an hour. And we asked for just one room to do the interviews, and they made us switch rooms for every interview. They they did every little thing they could to undermine us, to try to make the experience worse, and it was like Dudes, we are making videos that's gonna help sell your games. Like, yeah. we're, we're supposed to be on the same team here. So I felt like I experienced a little bit of what Sega of America experienced. And and it's sad. Um, but fortunately, like you know, like the other day I was on the subway, I live in New York, and I saw a kid, like a eight-year-old kid wearing a t-shirt of Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, there hasn't been a good Sonic the Hedgehog game in the past eight yeah. years. So <laughs> the reason the fact that he's wearing it is because Sega of America did such a great job of creating that character that you know. I always think of this idea of, like, what's in a name? You know, Mario's last name is what? Mario? Or, like, he doesn't have a yeah, last name. Yeah, nobody like, knows. He was just originally Jumpman, and then he became Mario. Whereas Sonic actually, uh, Sega thought all these things out. There was Sonic the Hedgehog, and the middle name was actually the. There was a whole Bible and backstory, and, like, they did all this stuff that's a storyteller I love. Like, they felt like these characters were real, and, and I think that that's, that's why it's successful. You know, there's, there's it, it's not, you people almost take for granted the fact that Sonic is so successful, whereas if you think of other mascot characters like Pac-Man or Frogger or Crash Bandicoot, like, we still have fond memories of them and they'll pop up from time to time, but, like, they're not a global icon like Sonic is, and...
0: Ever wonder where your family comes from or what your ancestors did for a living? You can discover more about them and learn about your story by combining the Ancestry DNA test with billions of historical family records. I did, it and I learned that my great-great grandfather Jacob Litman was a shoe salesman who came to New York from Eastern Europe back in 1891. Ancestry DNA even found an old newspaper clipping from 1930 about a fire at the family home. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. From. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story and give you a more complete picture of people from your past. Go to Ancestry.com slash today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash Ruben for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash Ruben. And now back to the show. It reminds me of in that same Netflix show that I wish I could remember what it was called uh, the, the Toys That Made Us. The, the Toys That Made Us, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, where they talk about that uh, the G.I. Joe was being sort of rebooted into our 80s G.I. Joe. Yeah. yeah. And but from because like the big ones, down yeah, the, from the big ones down yeah, to yeah. the ones that we played with, like this. But basically, Transformers was so hot, I think, in 1984 that they shelved it for a year. But then, what they did do in that year while they were waiting was they had the guy go in and write the backstory. So, all the stuff yeah. that was on the back of the cartridges, so all of the things that you're describing, Sega was able to do. G.I. Joe basically had a year to come up with it, and that ended up That's really sort of flourishing yeah. in, in so many other ways. And then, cartoons and everything else, okay you yes. have anything else to say about consoles before we move to the current year we should just say i, mean, there's, there's, that I could do 10 shows on this. I, you know
1: i basically feel like the last eight years of my life i spent three three years on console wars and four years on this new book and and at that point in my life it's 2014 um, my book is being made into a movie and now it's gonna be a tv show with all these people who i grew up loving their movies uh my book is a bestseller it's sold It's it's by far sold the most books of all time in the video game category, which we should remember is like a very small category. Come on, come on now. But you know things are good, and um, and then I ended up working on this book about Oculus, and as we'll get into, like this experience was so different because of the political aspect and how it weaved into this area that I never expected and um, and why I found listening to your show was such a comfort.
0: On that note, you gave me the segue that I needed already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the new book is the history of the future. It's Oculus, Facebook, and the revolution that swept virtual reality uh, for people that have no idea. I think people, have, a certain set of people of a certain age have a certain sense of what virtual reality sure. is. Maybe their son or grandchild has, you know, PlayStation VR, which I just tested out for the first time with like my it? nephews, who's pretty awesome. Yeah,
1: they did uh, a good job for like an affordable VR. Experience.
0: All I played was that game, that first game that it comes with, that you know, which is sort of like a Mario Brothers knockoff, and I was like, this is yeah, this is pretty freaking awesome.
1: Um, so yeah, so to explain just where, what I yeah, went, yeah. Virtual reality, the concept and and even um, demos have been around since the 1960s. Um, it's it's basically this idea of putting on glasses or goggles or a headset or whatever you want to call it something that's covering your eyes and you, and you, all you see is a computer generated world. And so back in the nineteen sixties, nineteen eighties, you know, even just the graphics of like a PlayStation in the nineties, it's like very blocky polygon graphics. You know, it doesn't really feel real. It doesn't even feel like a animated Pixar quality like movie. Um, but then nowadays, you know, or I guess I should just begin by saying that. Virtual reality was considered dead and, like, a waste of time back in 2012. It was, like, really, um, you know, a technological punchline, like, flying cars or jetpacks. It was like, right. this thing that's, like, a sci-fi trope that, like, we all thought was going to happen, and we were so
0: stupid. Right, the like, man. the ship sailed. Like, yeah. it, if it was going to happen, it, it should happen. Because Nintendo did try to do yeah, that. Yeah, Nintendo what, what, Virtual what was, Boy. Yeah, Virtual Boy, yeah. Which
1: was a very weird one, because it was, like, it was actually, like, a red-colored yeah. thing, and you stick your head into it like this but yeah. sega actually had a vr headset that they were going to release but then there was health concerns so you know it's been in the ether of gaming it's been in the periphery and the reason it never worked is manifold, but largely because it just has never worked and you never can't go to vcs and say oh look this is working like you basically are like here we have 50 years of failure and then they would look you like all right well why do you think you're going to succeed
0: was it partly just purely cost. I mean, I know everything starts off expensive and then as more people adopt it, it gets cheaper. But I remember in 1992 going on a family vacation to Toronto and they had like a Nintendo expose. I think it was called Nintendo World and they had this offshoot VR yeah. thing where we put on, I remember doing it, we put on this giant helmet and we were in this like circle thing and it was me and my brother and we had to shoot each other and it was awesome. It was yeah. blocky and pixelated and all that. But it was cool as hell. Like you kind of felt like you were gonna fall off a ledge and all that stuff. But it was a, my point is that it was a lot of equipment. It was a lot of right. stuff. Right. Stuff that would have cost a ton of money when you're trying to get these into kids' homes, when right. the system itself only cost eighty bucks.
1: No, you're, you're it's right. A like, well, one thing I'd say, like, like I, I described, it as blocky and polygon-like, like a PlayStation game. And so people look back and like, oh, of course it failed, and then it's like, no, we were playing games of that quality on PlayStation that was cutting edge to us. So mm. it, that wasn't why it failed. Um, and and I, I thought it was cool. Like, I, like if you had pulled me aside in like 1994 and were like, hey, kid, ah. I don't know some creepy pedophile. No, if you're like, "Hey kid, I'm from the future. Yeah. Virtual reality is gonna be the biggest thing in the world." I'd be like, "Duh, of course!" Like, like I, we we all know that that's happening. So I, you know, I and I wasn't particularly into it. It just seemed so obvious. It was you know there was movies like Lawnmower Man. It was just more and more like seeming like a part of our lives. It was in the mall. Um, and you're right, like the the at home consumer sort of console version was way too expensive. But the way that it succeeded at first or became sort of ubiquitous was the uh, the the location base, like at malls. Mm-hmm. you pay $15 and you'd go up with your brother and it was probably a good use of money and your parents were happy to have you go in there. But yeah. that ended because the market just dried up. Um, they were losing money on this and VR was left for dead. And then in 2012, or between 2009 and 2012, um, a 16-year-old kid in 2009, 19-year-old kid in 2012 named Palmer Lucky was obsessed with VR. He was a, 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 you know, a self-taught engineer slash tinkerer um, who loved modifying old consoles and actually portabilizing old consoles. Like he, him and his buddies would f- take uh, your, your Nintendo and figure out like, how can we make the smallest version that you can bring on the go with you. So he was almost like uniquely talented to be dealing with retro consoles, but with, uh, you know, he's a, he is a genius level talent. And so he spent three years um, my book begins in 2012. He's living in a trailer in Long Beach, California. Um, the trailer is parked in his parents' driveway because they had kicked him out of the house, but he <laughs> can at least stay in the driveway. Not off
0: the property, yeah.
1: And he, I remember him telling me, I was like, like, tell me what the trailer looked like. And he had gutted the kitchen, and it was basically just this mad scientist laboratory of building VR headsets, and I was like, this sounds a lot like Walter White's meth lab, <laughs> but like curated for VR headsets instead of meth. And he's like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. So you got this image of this 19 year old mad scientist genius guy working on this technology that no one cares about like even his friends who love gaming are like dude VR VR died Um, but he loved it and uh, you know he created this prototype that was that that could be made for a few hundred dollars and and even at that time you know it's been 10 20 years since what you were talking about like like the best VR headsets would still cost $5,000 or $10,000. And he created something that was better than all of that and cost a few hundred dollars. And then his sort of like um, being discovered moment was this uh, game maker named John Carmack, who's one of the most legendary game makers. He's responsible for Doom and Wolfenstein and Quake and all the id software. And he, he had licensed those games in the 90s to VR companies that wanted to make, you know, like location-based stuff, and it sucked. And he and uh, you know John Carmack, he he he's probably even smarter than Palmer. He's a real genius. He, uh, after whenever he finishes a game, he takes a little R and D period where he investigates some unknown technology or you know unknown to him technology. One time, this resulted in him starting an aerospace company because he's just like, oh, I spent a few weeks learning, you know, rocket science. Why not? Why not? Yeah. 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 Um, so he learned rocket science and started a company. And so in uh, 2012, after he finished, or late 2011, after he finished this game called Rage, he was like, oh, virtual reality, what, whatever happened to that? It's been so long. It must have progressed so much since I last looked at this. And he realized, like, no, it, it, it's just as bad. And, like, it's such a carmat thing to say. He told me, he's like, I was actually offended by how much <laughs> had not progressed as, like a, as a technologist, as an idealist. And then he was searching on the internet. He heard about this, you know, this, this, uh, this hardware hacker named Palmer Tech. Palmer Lucky. He got in touch with him. He asked to borrow his headset. And then he was uh, really impressed. He ended up bringing it to the annual trade show E3 in 2012 and uh, demoing it. And it was like, it won like so many awards. And it was this, you know, homemade thing competing against like the millions and billions of dollars, you know, the million dollar booths and billion dollar products from Nintendo and Sony and all that. And then that sort of, you know, is what led to the beginning of Oculus and, and, and Palmer Lucky bursting onto the scene
0: bah there's a lot to go i can yes. go in a lot of different directions there so now vr has had this sort of rebirth yeah. and people are people are using it again and they're using it not only for gaming but for all all sorts of things Yeah. Um, how did what what's the facebook part sure. of this so, story yeah
1: so partly also to answer your question of like, why didn't it work before? I mean, a lot of it is just technology. You know, Moore's Law, things get better. Palmer Lucky would be the first to say that if not for the advances in cell phone technology with tracking and the screens, like, he wouldn't have succeeded. If he had been born 20 years earlier, he wouldn't have been so lucky. Okay, there, I said, use the pun. Uh, I, it was really hard in the book to avoid using, like, luck. That must have been difficult. Okay, I was proud to say I never did it. But, but um, you know, it, the, the technology was such a big part of it. And, and really, like... Everyone who is in the VR space, who's visionary, very few people then, a lot of people now, they all, um, you know, it's all the same end goal, where you can put on a headset and potentially have an experience like the Matrix, and it would be like, you know, as thin as classes like this, and it would be as real as the Matrix. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's really just a matter of how do we get there, and how do we do it in a way where you can monetize it. And what I thought was so cool about Oculus and why I was interested in writing the book was... They, they thought the video games were the way in. It wasn't like Palmer was like, oh, video games is the whole point of VR. It was actually uh, gamers tend to have a lot of disposable income and they're willing to spend it on higher end things. So we can sell these headsets for $300 and sell games. And it was like, this is the perfect market. This is the perfect stepping stone to get to where we want VR to go. This is how we grow the industry. And so they launched a Kickstarter in, on August 1st, 2012. They were trying to raise $400,000. They raised two and a half million. Hmm. Their slogan because um, we know that the marketing and promotion is really important. It was a step into the game and that was created by Palmer's co-founders. They sort of brought this business marketing savvy to the whole thing. Um, you know, it was a great peanut butter and jelly combination, uh, you know, with Palmer being the hardware maker and them being they, they had a background, in, you know, they were software makers and, and, and that. And so um, you know, I, I was I was really fascinated by Using gaming as the way into growing this technology and then in a surprise to me and to most people in 2014 so less than two years after the company was founded they sold the Facebook for three billion dollars and um, You know one of the reasons they did that was just because the resources that Facebook would give them you know were basically like we don't need to make money for the foreseeable future like we will and Facebook will make these investments but Facebook also went away from gaming for probably reasons that we'll get into a little bit, which is like the cultural, the gamer game, like mm-hmm. this is a toxic white male space that we don't want to be in or, we, you Because know.
0: only awful white right. male neo-Nazis play video games. Yeah, and it
1: was mostly. like, yeah. so, uh, you know, like obviously I, that's not true. Also, that's just a really stupid business strategy <laughs> because, um, you know, one of the things, this is flashing forward a bit, but like before, uh, also, so I got incredible access for the book. Um, anyone who's read anything I've written, I like to tell character-driven stories and I can't do it without access. Like, I would never write a book about your life without um, you know, some way that I was gonna get a lot of interviews with you, ideally, a lot of archival texts and emails and all that. Um, you know, I'm still writing it independently, but I just couldn't imagine doing it without that. Because how mm-hmm. else can I put readers in the room with you and in your head? Um, and so I got this incredible access that lasted for two and a half years and ended for reasons that we'll definitely get to. But my last visit, to Facebook's campus in Menlo Park. It was uh, February of 2018, and I remember talking to the two new heads of Oculus after the founders were no longer in charge, and um, one of them had presided over Android going from 25 million to a billion users, and the other was a guy who actually used to be Mark's TA back in college, and had joined the company um, really early on and talked about how originally they had been so successful in colleges, you know, and then they went mainstream. And both of them talked about, like, we're now at this point where we've already succeeded with gamers and now we're going mainstream, and it was, like, um, it just reminded me, sort of, like, the ET thing, where it's, like, no, you're putting the cart before the horse, like uh-huh. you, you just assume success, and then you're moving on to the next thing, like, I know so many gamers who hate you, who think you guys are doing a terrible job, um, and fortunately, I think Facebook has actually gravitated back more towards the gaming, the evil, toxic gamer space, um, but it's just—it was just interesting to look at it along that lens that I never would have thought. I never would have thought the cultural aspect would be a part of my story, and then of course it became a huge part of the story because Palmer Luckey got fired in the middle of my writing the book.
0: Right. So okay, can you explain that because that then sort of sure. bring, that connects all of this for the, for the average person that's watch that watches my show normally. That's like right. this show is a little offbeat for yeah. what you normally do, which is completely fine. But this now is sort of what is going to link it sure. to almost everything else.
1: Yeah. So the story of my life the past few years. I mean, so, so Palmer was the, the founder, the visionary of Oculus. He was 19 years old. He was 21 when they sold it. He's a brilliant, charismatic guy. He was the face of the industry. Um, important character. Uh, and, and, and so he also happened to be a Trump supporter. Um, and originally, this was something that he was like like there's a video from February of 2016 um, of there was like a Trump rally and he appeared on an NBC news piece and was a, at the Trump rally. Um,
0: Let me get this straight. This man supports <laughs> the president of the United States yeah. and expects to have a job and be a functioning member of society? Is that what you're telling yes. me? Yes. Well, it was is, just that interesting is. because... I can't believe we're even doing this You know, like, of, no.
1: cor- of course there should be nothing wrong with openly, publicly supporting one of the two major candidates <laughs> in a two-party system. But then I noticed... Um, he stopped publicly doing it, and what happened was the only other person in Silicon Valley who publicly supported Trump. And this is not my words. This is Mark Andreessen, the most famous VC, has talked about how he's only actually knows two two out out Trump supporters, Peter Thiel and Palmer Lucky. And Peter Thiel, uh, you know, spoke at the RNC, and he's uh, Peter Thiel is famous for uh, PayPal, but also being the first investor in Facebook and being mm-hmm. on the board of Facebook, and all across Facebook campus, people fought so hard to get him fired mm-hmm. for the crime of supporting Trump and speaking at the RNC. Um, and so Palmer's like, okay, well, I should probably not be so public about this because this is what will happen to me. Um, and that was both mm-hmm. foreshadowing and also important because what happened was in September of 2016, so this was two months before the election, uh, Palmer donated a little bit less than $10,000 to an organization called Nimble America. Nimble America's goal was to put up billboards across the country, um, really, really wild stuff. Um, they, they're, like, what ended up getting them into trouble was that they uh, spoke in the parlance of the, the Donald subreddit, and they said, you know, we have proved that meme magic is real. We're going to post across America by which they just meant, we, the royal, we, Donald, and like, we're going to put up billboards. The only billboard Nimble America ever put up in its entire existence was a billboard, a slightly characterized uh, image of Hillary Clinton's face with the headline, Too Big to Jail, mm-hmm.
0: so. So just, just to be clear, in case people are missing some of this, because there's so much here, all they, he gave $10,000 to this company, they were gonna put up billboards that were gonna just put memes up. So the memes that had been sort of bouncing were, all over like, the internet, that's all they were doing.
1: Like and and not even like well we'll get into uh,
0: because the memes were the things that actually were right? were they're, fueling the Trump campaign but but, oh, but, but a lot me, of them were just shit posting kids coming up with funny right. things
1: and and memes like to me I think there's a very internet aspect to it like when you're actually putting up physical billboards they're just called advertisements right right, right. I mean they might look like memes or whatever right but but I guess we'd say modern you,
0: you can't know, share that you lose some of the meme right. magic let's say
1: yeah but like and, and then also talking to the founders of Nimble America, because this would become an issue in in a second I'll get to, but like, you know, the way, okay, well, let's just say what happens next. So on September 22nd, uh, 2016, the Daily Beast comes out with an article about Palmer, and the headline is, Facebook billionaire secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And the insinuation was that every terrible meme that you'd seen online during this past election season, everything transphobic, concentration camps, anti-Semitic, all this stuff, Paul Merlucky was the guy funding it all, and if, if you didn't get that from the headline and the article, this this tech blogger named Anil Dash explicitly oh, said that
0: guy. He does not. He's no fan of mine.
1: Oh, he's no fan of mine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Because so, I I was tweeting about Apu that I think Apu should be allowed uh, to be in yeah. the Simpsons, and he told me I'm racist. And oh
1: uh, yeah, yeah. And, well, he was kinder to you than to me. So yeah. But, all right. Um, yeah, you because know, I want my job as a journalist is to speak with all the people involved in this. Uh, So I wanted to hear his side of the story because he did post um, that Facebook, that Palmer was using his billions, remember $10,000, but I don't even think the money thing is irrelevant. Um, The fact is that this organization, whether Palmer gave $1 or a million dollars, they weren't doing anything inappropriate. Right. and, and he said that Palmer was responsible for every white supremacist meme that you'd seen. And then, of wait, course- Wait,
0: wait, we've got to pause for a second. You're telling me Daily Beast did something that didn't have great <laughs> in journalist integrity?
1: Speaking of integrity, here's an interesting thing. And, and, I, and I tried to handle- Next it you're
0: going to tell me BuzzFeed's up to the same
1: thing. Huff, ho, <laughs> no, Vox, a, I can't believe it. So what happened, actually, the way that it all played out was Palmer donated to Nibble America. They- um, because he was doing it anonymously after learning from the Peter Thiel situation, his, his moniker there was Nimble Rich Man. They said, we have a wealthy benefactor that they thought this would give legitimacy to the organization. People on Reddit said, oh, you don't really have a wealthy backer. They got Milo Yiannopoulos, who was a moderator, uh, you know, popular on the Donald, to verify that Palmer existed, not say his name, but basically be like, I have confirmed that there is a wealthy person. So the Nimble, thing, the nimble America thing launched on September 17th. A few days later, Gideon Resnick from the Daily Beast emails Milo, and I always just found it funny, because you know he writes these hippies on Milo, fair or not, But just, he's so friendly. He's like, hey, buddy, like, how's it going? Yeah, but that's what they always do. I know, but I don't think most people know that. I think most people. they always do that. But yeah, um, because I included the emails in the book. But so he contacts Milo and says, what's the deal with this Nimble America thing? Um, Up the previous month, Gideon Resnick had written an article about how Milo's privileged scholarship thing was a scam. I have no idea whether it was or not, but Milo interpreted it as a hit piece and assumed that Gideon was going to write another hit piece. Milo said, I have no affiliation with this thing other than I verified that there was a wealthy person. Um, Gideon keeps pressing. Um, Milo asks Palmer if he could reveal his name so that Milo's off the hot seat. Palmer, uh, they end up basically agreeing that Palmer will like reveal himself as long as uh, there's no article written, or if there's an article written, his identity is kept
0: secret. Christ, this is like talking about Batman and Bruce Wayne, (laughs) okay?
1: Um, but anyway, uh, that that agreement was struck, the Gideon resident from the Daily Beast said, "Sure, he would do this anonymously." He ended up revealing Pollard's name. Now, I, I like I said, I, it was, was difficult for me to handle the book because, like, I think at the end of the day, all that someone like my mom or most viewers should care about is like what happened, not fruit from the forbidden tree. That's like pr- procedural stuff that you and I, as journalists and storytellers, can care about, but like. The average person should just care about what did Palmer actually do, what did he donate to, Mm -hmm. what this organization Mm -hmm. do. So I don't want to focus too much on that, but I just was like disgusted by the Daily Beast. Um, Not surprising. And then, of course, within a matter of hours after the article claiming that Palmer is responsible for all this stuff, every single tech press, um, you know, every – it was was really just that game of telephone that we all know happens, but it was like to actually look at the headlines. I once lined Mm -hmm. them up. You know, you have this Palmer Lucky secretly funding – Trump's meme machine. Then Ars Technica a few hours later, Paul Merleckey secretly finding Trump's racist meme machine. Yeah. Same exact headline, but let's throw in the word racist. And it just like escalates like that.
0: Well, it's so funny because just as you're saying this, what popped into my head was so our our friend, Colin Moriarty, who's been on the show many times, and when he got into hot water over his tweet, which was, um, you know, international women's day, finally a little peace and quiet, Business Insider wrote, the headline was Colin Moriarty of what was his old company? Uh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, kind of funny. Oh, uh, kind of funny. His his racist tweet. Which is so funny because like... But it had nothing to do I, with racism.
1: Racism and sexism are real problems and... But I'll, you know, I'll identify myself as a, as a literal here. Like, and, and, and they are just used as like synonymous buzzwords like, oh, you did something bad, that was a racist comment.
0: No. You can acknowledge that they are real things, but that <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean they're the no, same thing. They're not. still different things, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. But this
0: sort of thing then, where the media then catches on and it right. spreads like wildfire and they just replicate headlines right. and the rest
1: of it, yeah. and, and we can get into that and the fake news and all of that because that is important. But here's the real fucked up part of the story. So all of this is happening, I would, you know, the next day, you know, the press culminates the next day with Wired. You know, I would have thought the most venerable tech press out there. They have a headline: Palmer Lucky's the worst, but he doesn't represent Silicon Valley. Like, that's not news. He's the worst yeah. for supporting Trump. Um, but anyway, you can imagine the firestorm at Facebook. Um, this is a public figure. This is your young, charismatic. Chosen one, um, and he is being called a racist. He's being called the worst person on the internet. People are saying um, boycott Oculus, all this stuff. Real PR disasters, and I sympathize with that. But so what happened was, uh, you know, Palmer, um, the, one of the biggest influences of in his life is debate. And so he, his, his, one of the things I really like about him is that he's always willing to talk things out. He doesn't just have his opinion and say, well, that's my way or the highway. So his response was you know, to write a public statement and explain, like, Most of the stuff is not true. Here's what is true. Here's what's not true. Like it's a very Palmer-like way of dealing with this. And and he described that this organization, Nimble America, he donated them because uh, of the principles of like um, you know he wanted to put an end to uh, America's like never-ending wars and the millions of people dying, which also becomes relevant with the company started after this. But like you know, it certainly didn't persuade me to vote for Trump. But it was at least like he wasn't just like. You know, mm. let's drink liberal tears. Like, he had a reason, uh, re- he, re- he had his reasoning for this and, and explained why he supported Trump. Facebook would not let him put that message up. This news all hit at uh, 6 p.m. What, Pacific time on a, on a Thursday, I think, Pomeroy's statement almost right away wanted to put it up. Facebook wouldn't let him say he supported Trump. Unbelievable, I mean, it's so, really, it's it's in it's it a Yeah, yeah, I know. So, so th- I mean, that's crazy, again. At that point, Trump is one of two people in a two-party system, um, who I personally despise, but I also, more importantly, think everyone should be able to support any candidate they want, especially yeah. a, a non-verge candidate. Wait, um, I,
0: I hate to do this, but our schedule is so nuts today, so we have to somehow, can we do this all in five minutes? Is that even yes, remotely yeah, possible? Yeah, yeah. All, right, really let's, yeah, all right, let's try to do so, this in five minutes. Um, so
1: anyway, the next Palmer's dying to get the statement out, You know, every hour new article's coming out, um, and then finally he gets a statement that he is told to post and this statement comes directly from Mark Zuckerberg. Mark wrote the statement, and it says that Palmer's going to post, and it says, I'm supporting Gary Johnson. So Palmer is being told to lie about his politics and say that he's supporting Gary Johnson. And Palmer, of course, doesn't want to do this, but he's told he'll be fired if he doesn't do it. So he does that, and that's illegal in California. Um, also really unethical.
0: Wait, what, what's illegal?
1: Uh, to force someone to lie to- about their political beliefs um, in, in a public statement. Huh. Um, then Palmer is put on suspension for the next six months, and then he is, ends up being fired. But uh, I just could not believe that Mark personally wrote a statement that, that you know was so, it was so intolerable to support Trump that he had to say that he was supporting Gary Johnson. And then that also was terrible for his reputation, what was left of it, because, yeah, the liberal mainstream press went after him with the racist b- bullshit. But then all the MAGA people, who Mm -hmm. he got a lot of messages, like, oh, I'm gonna buy a a headset because I wanna support you. They're all like, oh, he's either a coward or he really is a Gary Johnson supporter and I think he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: You must have talked to him about why he didn't just take whatever money he had gotten already and just walked.
1: Uh, well, I, there was. I had to be very careful with things I talked with him, and obviously he signed agreements. But I have, you know, I have a very close relationship. I've spoken with him almost every day for the past three years. Um, and, and fortunately, people at Facebook thought what happened was so messed up. They were really helpful to getting me internal documents, um, so I was able to piece together the story. Get Mark's actual email forcing Palmer to lie about his political beliefs. Um, and and, 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 and the, but the short answer is your question. Um that I have never been able to actually ask him it, but it 's because he was he would have done anything to stay at oculus like he it was it, his so, baby yeah it was his baby like at one point after they 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 tried to fire him and give him no, none of his remaining vesting money, basically it was a backloaded deal um he said okay i 'll work there for free, but they wouldn 't let him continue to work there like he just it was it was his everything God, yeah it's
0: like it's like silicon Valley on h b o it's, it's yeah. bananas yeah. There's so much more here, and there's such a, there's such a connection I'll between this this, this it, last. I, yeah. I will gladly have you back. I mean, this last 15 minutes, especially, it's so connective to so many of the things I talk about related to the tech world right. and free speech and politics and the mob and all of these right. things. So it's 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 fascinating, and we. But then, and then
1: I'll do a very yeah. quick thing. Yes, do something. Right, quick. I start by saying console wars. Like I was the darling of the tech. Press World, I wrote this book, it was being turned into a movie. Um, most people liked the book, because I think it was very well written, but or just because it was a Sega Nintendo thing. Uh, it is now uh, July, the book's been out for four months. It has, there still has not been a single review of the book. Not a single person in the tech or gaming community has acknowledged my book. God,
0: these um, evil freaks.
1: Fortunately, our yeah, mutual we're friend, my right. so yeah. uh, has promoted the hell out of it, had me on a few times. And the book went up to number two on all of Amazon, which totally kicked the butt of my first book. So nice. this book has outsold my first book, which was the best-selling video game book, video game book of all time, and there still has not been a single review. I wonder why. All right.
0: Well, I don't write book reviews, but we will link to, should we link cool. to Amazon? Is that where you want yeah. us to link? We will link to Amazon uh, for this book. We'll do this again because there's so much more awesome. here and it's so connected to some of those other things. We'll stream some video games or something because especially, yes, especially if you're not very good, it would be a pleasure to yeah. beat you in Too something. You know? uh, all right. It's been fun. Uh, there's a lot more here, obviously. For more on Blake, follow him on the Twitter machine at Blake J. Harris NYC.